Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Kellen, it feels like all over, whether it's with my family, whether it's on social media, whether it's on the news, everybody is talking about the prices of their goods going up. Just the other day, my mom mentioned something about going to the grocery store and feeling like she spent so much money and, and didn't get that much stuff, right? On social media today, I saw a post in a group I'm a part of, a local group, and the person just said, does it feel like to anybody else that... Food at X grocery store has gone up by like 30%. This is wild. And then, of course, the news is constantly bombarding us with this just constant numbers of how much prices of really everything are increasing. Well, I get it, right? Because it is scary when you see gas prices and food prices and everything else going up, especially if your personal income isn't matching that, which I think in most cases for people, it's not. It starts to become really concerning. You compound that with the fact that so many people are living on the edge of their budget or they are up to their eyeballs in debt. And I think I'd be more surprised if people weren't talking about it. So much of the frustration for me comes around how people are talking about it in that they're just trying to find someone to blame, right? And it turns into political madness. We will get into all of this a little bit later. The last half of the episode or last part of the episode, I want to talk about our current situation. But obviously what we're talking about here is inflation. And 
We have brought up inflation on the podcast, I think, one time, and that was in episode six, where we talked about the financial system. That was back in 2020, which is kind of wild to think about. That was like, feels like a decade ago. And I remember uh, we were talking about inflation and how it happens, and you asked, why are we not seeing inflation right now? With all the stimulus that's gone out, like, wouldn't you think we'd be seeing inflation? And I remember answering that question to the best of my ability. I am not an economist, and and I was just answering based on the research that I'd done in saying that we weren't seeing it yet at our level, but that it was happening in the realm of, of wealthier people, right? That was where the money really went in the form of sort of cash flowing into the stock market and things like that, and that in time we would likely see inflation. But since then, we haven't talked about this really much at all. And I thought today would be a good episode to just be able to discuss, again, in a little bit more depth, what is inflation? What causes it? What are the different types of inflation? And then also maybe mention deflation, stagflation, hyperinflation, and then again, at the end, we can just kind of talk about our current situation. We're not going to speculate on the future. That's not what we do in this podcast. But we'll talk about maybe how we got to where we are and possibilities for what the future could look like. Yeah. And although we haven't talked about inflation throughout the course of the podcast, one thing that I know you said multiple times, Corey, is that almost all aspects of collapse will manifest themselves as economic problems. For example... As we start to get deeper and deeper into resource depletion, as we're running out of limited resources, life won't change much for most people other than that scarcity will cause prices to go up. You know, you think about conflict, you think about mass migrations, you think about all these kind of social, political issues, and usually it's not like society is just totally falling apart. But what people do see in their day-to-day -day lives is major economic impacts, and that tends to trickle down to their personal finances. Yeah, well said. And so many people view economic issues as confusing or boring, perhaps, and they may not necessarily equate economic troubles with what we're talking about in this podcast in, in collapse. You look at countries that are currently going through issues like Sri Lanka, Lebanon, Venezuela, and many others. And so many people would say, oh yeah, they're, they're going through severe economic issues that's causing some unrest, maybe some food shortages. And, and we're saying, no, they're collapsing, right? And I think that's going to be a continuation into the future as, as more and more countries take that same course. People will continue to look at it as economic and they will separate that from the overall sort of overarching systemic issues, the systemic failure that we're having. But if you're listening to this podcast or if you've studied collapse in other spheres and you're familiar with systems thinking, then you know that as we see those things happen, it's a symptom of a much larger problem. Economic issues are just simply how all these problems manifest themselves. We'll state the same caveat here that we have in past episodes when we talk about economics, and it's that there are so many opinions on how economics work. And the fact that economics are man-made, it's basically a pseudoscience that has been created. That means that there is a lot of room for different opinions. There's no one universal truth. And so there are a lot of different opinions on how things should be done, on how things do work. And for that reason, we are not going to go terribly deep in this conversation. We're not going to get stuck in the weeds of economics here and different economic theories we're just going to give an overall picture of what inflationary forces are in hopes that for people who might be just unfamiliar 
with that side of things, you know, they can get a big picture idea of, of what's happening. Well, I think it's important as well because it's both a cause and a symptom of collapse. As we start to see economic issues and as that translates to inflation, that causes some major impacts to society. And like we talked about before, a lot of these other issues related to collapse manifest themselves as economic problems. And so it's it's both an input and an output in the collapse conversation. And for anyone who wants to be fully collapse aware and educated, this is an important topic. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into some just basic sort of definitions and ideas here. So at a very basic level, we understand inflation is the decrease in buying power of a currency. I think a lot of people think of inflation and all they view it as is increasing prices, which is one way to look at it. But what it actually is, is the fact that your currency is decreasing in value. You're not able to buy as much with that same amount of currency as you were before. So if you could buy a piece of bread with one unit of currency before, and now it takes two units of currency, well, you can either look at it as, well, the price of bread has doubled, or you can look at it as it takes two of this currency to do what I was able to do before with one. Now, one thing we did not touch at all on that last conversation 87 episodes ago on inflation was that there are different types of inflation. So I'm just gonna name a couple of these here. There's something called cost push inflation, which is something that happens as the cost of actually doing business increases for companies, and they have to push that cost onto customers. So if a price of a good increases for a producer or manufacturer or retailer or whatever it is, they have to increase their prices to make it so that their margins still work. And those increasing prices overall, and that happens over a large sector of the economy, can cause your currency to not be able to purchase as much. So what you're saying is if I'm McDonald's and the price of beef and cheese and lettuce has all gone up, then I just turn around and increase what I charge for a burger. Absolutely. Yep. And you're saying when we see that across a significant portion of the market, that's what you're describing, right? Right. And this type of thing will happen slowly or can happen slowly. It doesn't have to be some big shock to the system that causes it. But yes, exactly what you just described. Over time, as things slowly increase in price, that will cause inflation. So the next one is called demand pull inflation. We just talked about cost push. This is demand pull. And this is when there's too high of a demand without enough supply. So this one's kind of obvious, right? In economics, you learn about the relationship between supply and demand. If there's greater demand for something than there is supply, then the cost for that product will increase. This is often described as too many dollars chasing too few goods. And there's a lot of reasons why this can happen. We are seeing this right now in the economy, right? In this specific case, there's been a shock to the system in a lot of ways. We'll get more into that here in a bit, but it means that more people are out looking for more items. And because that supply can't be met, the prices for that is increasing and that's happening system-wide. So an example that comes to mind for me is how we had this supply chain disruption in microchips and a lot of vehicles need those. And so people that were looking for a new vehicle, they wanted to purchase a new vehicle, there just weren't very many available. And we saw the price of new vehicles and then soon after the price of used vehicles shoot way up. That's right. So anybody who needed a vehicle was going to pay a premium for it because everybody wanted a vehicle 
And, you know, this is a mix of, of both demand pull and cost push, right? Because the cost of doing business was increasing because there was a shortage of supply for them. So they were paying more and that was passed on then to the client who was paying more. And then that also has a feedback loop because as people start to worry that they're not going to be able to get a vehicle, demand increases as they sort of panic buy. And that goes into any product. So the last one here is built-in inflation, and this is describing that positive feedback loop. So once prices start to increase, things like wages increase to make up for it, which causes costs to increase for the business, and they turn around and increase their costs to the customer because of that. So this is a feedback loop that can continue inflation in sort of this downward spiral if there's not measures taken to correct for it. And then lastly, we've talked about just the influx of dollars into the system, the creation of money, and that money being passed too freely to people to be able to spend. This kind of ties back into demand pull, because when there's more cash in the system, people are going to want to buy more things with it, which is going to increase demand. So you'll hear economists talk about how some inflation is healthy. So in the U.S., the Fed has a target inflation rate of between 2 and 3%. And they say that's healthy because if we have that little bit of inflation, that means that we're growing. We're having GDP growth, and that's healthy. And now this only happens with a fiat currency. We talked about this in episode 6. If you're needing a refresher, I would go back and listen to that one again. But when your currency is not tied to any resource with inherent value, you're going to have a continual rate of inflation. So the Fed is always monitoring what is our rate of inflation, how quickly are things increasing in cost, and they have levers that they pull to try and account for that, right? If inflation is getting too high, they'll pull some of these magic levers to basically manipulate how people will react and cause them to stop spending so much money, thereby decreasing inflation. If the opposite is happening, if we're having deflation, which we'll talk a little bit more in a, about in a minute. But if, if we're having deflation, then they will pull their levers the other direction and people will increase their spending. And those levers that they use are primarily interest rates. You've probably heard a lot recently about the Fed raising interest rates right now. And that's because they are trying to discourage people from borrowing money or make it harder for people to borrow money so that they're not investing as much into new businesses or cars or homes. They're not spending as much money, and they're hoping that by doing that, they'll be able to lower inflation. When people aren't spending enough money, they will lower interest rates to encourage people to go out and buy homes and take out loans and get cars and all these things to put more money into the system. And it's fascinating to me that we've seen pretty extreme examples of this just in the last couple of years, where with the pandemic... You know, they were trying to kickstart the economy and they dropped interest rates super low. People felt like it was kind of like free money to go out and get a loan. And then to think now that we're seeing the opposite problem, interest rates are going up at a faster pace than they have in the last, what, like 45 years or something like that. Yeah. And in a way it is, it is sort of free money. If you got in a home at 2.8% interest rate in 2020 and now interest is 8% right now, year over year. Because your interest rate is beating inflation, you're basically making money on the loan on your home if you look at it that way. So I thought, Kellen, you asked a really great question in episode six. You basically said, so why is this a problem? Why why can't we just continue, you know, the, the goods increase in cost, but 
you know, if wages increase in cost to meet that, why can't we just continue that way forever? And do you remember the answer that I gave? And you remember our conversation around that? I have a feeling you're about to remind me. <laughs> I was hoping you would remind remind me. But no, it's, first of all, wages typically don't keep up, right? Wages do increase, which continues that feedback loop. They increase out of necessity and because people start to get desperate and demand it. But typically they, they don't keep up at the same rate. And not all parts of the economy are inflating in the same way. So one sector, you could say the energy sector might be inflating more than food and foods inflating more than clothes. And, and so there's no real balance there. On paper, it might be really easy to say, yeah, if we just kind of keep at the same pace, everything increasing at the same rate, then there's no problems. But even that wouldn't be true. Because like we talked about in that previous episode, people are saving up money right now for their retirement. People are saving up for a car in the future or whatever it looks like. And if that money that's sitting there in a bank being saved up, your emergency savings is decreasing in value year over year. And if it's at a high enough, high enough percentage, you can negate a person's entire retirement plan. And by the time they hit retirement age, they have to continue working uh, until they die because their money is not worth what it was in the past. Yeah, one analogy I've heard from people who are trying to find ways to preserve wealth and fight inflation is that because it's this constant battle, they say it feels like you're holding ice cubes in your hands and it's just continually slowly melting away and slipping through your hands. And inflation, in that analogy, feels like somebody pulls out a blow dryer and is is heating that, right? Is causing that ice to melt even faster. And so to me, it makes total sense. Like you said, if, if you're somebody who is saving for retirement, you're putting all this money away in savings, and yet the purchasing power of that money is melting away at a faster and faster rate, then obviously there's lots of implications of that. And it's interesting that you just mentioned preserving wealth because I th I actually thought this was kind of interesting. Maybe not so much interesting, maybe um, funny in like a sad, ironic way. One of the articles that I was reading had a question and it said, who benefits from inflation? Because here we're talking about how inflation is a bad thing. But I'm just going to read this to you. It says, inflation being a cause of concern for the economy doesn't affect everyone in a bad way. It is a boon for a certain set of people. While consumers lose a part of their purchasing power to inflation, investors gain from it. Investors investing in assets affected by inflation, if held on for a long time, will certainly benefit from it. For example, an increase in housing prices might affect consumers. However, those who have already bought a house will benefit from capital appreciation. So that's a fancy way of saying rich people get richer and poor people become poorer. Yeah, earlier you mentioned the whole idea of it's like free money if you've got a low interest rate, you know, let's say on your house, because as your house appreciates in value, as inflation increases, you're making money on that loan. So I can only imagine, you know, some real estate mogul who has a wide collection of commercial properties, as inflation goes up, those assets are just spiking in value, right? Yeah, if, if your parents own a home and you were to ask them what their mortgage payment is, as long as they haven't refinanced a lot, you know, over the, the past decades, if they have the original mortgage that they had when they got their house, their payment's probably a few hundred dollars, you know, maybe six or seven hundred dollars or something. But if they were to sell their house now, the person that buys that house is going to have a mortgage of fifteen hundred dollars. And so when you lock in a, a low rate, like you're talking about, that rate of interest saves you money over time 
but also in 20 years time, the monthly payment you're making is low compared to what your wage is. And a lot of people make the point that, you know, wealthy people really benefit from this, especially if there comes a moment of recession or a crash in the market, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But people who are able to sell when things are really high and then reinvest that cash into all the whether it's homes or other assets that depreciate in value, they're able to buy them when they're low and hold on to them again for a long time and build a lot of wealth, which is great for wealthy people. And it's terrible for people who are just trying to get by. Yeah, it's that basic principle of any investing, buy low, sell high. In times of recession, most people don't have the excess funds to be able to acquire those assets at a low price. Or even just the security in their jobs or whatever to feel comfortable with making an investment like that. Yeah, makes sense. Or the credit, right? The bank's not going to give them a loan because they don't have the cash to spend. Wealthy investors can come in with cash, put that money down, and in a decade that has doubled or tripled in value. That's, that's basically what happened after 2008 to today. So going back to the Fed and the way that they measure inflation... There's several different measurements that they take, different ways that they try and calculate what inflation actually is. This is an extremely complex thing to try and measure. When you really contemplate all of the things that are being bought and sold and trying to measure how that's changing over time, it's not easy. And there's a lot of flaws in the way that they do it. So one of the more popular ways is something called CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, it's basically a bucket of different types of purchases that people make, and it measures the changes in those purchases over time. So it measures things like food, housing, clothes, transportation, it measures education, recreation, things like medical care. And just the fact that it doesn't take everything into account already makes it inherently flawed. But there are actually some considerable shortcomings of using CPI to be able to measure inflation. I'm just going to mention a couple of them here. So one of those is substitutable goods. If somebody switches from buying a name brand product at the store to switching and buying a generic brand, the CPI just assumes that people are going to continue buying the same type of product as they were before. When it comes to new innovations or new technologies and products, it doesn't take into account those new efficiencies into the market. Shrinkflation is a big one. You know, if you think about, you know, when Lay's potato chips decides to put 10% less chips in their bag, but charge the same price, CPI is, has no idea that there's less product than there was before. So it may think that the inflation didn't increase when in reality, you're paying 10% more than you were before. And shrinkflation is a real issue. I feel like we could do a whole episode on shrinkflation. It would be kind of fun. I just went to the store and bought some dog food for my dogs. And the price was about normal. It was about what I used to pay. But instead of being a 50 pound bag, it was now a 44 pound bag. And what I thought was hilarious was that on the bag, they were advertising it as a 40-pound bag, and they were giving us four extra pounds for free. But really what they were doing was taking away six pounds that I was getting before. And maybe the price was a little bit less than what I had paid before, but I was definitely paying more per pound for the food. And then lastly, just what I'll mention is that the CPI focuses on urban consumers more than anybody else. So if you're a rural buyer, you're not getting calculated into that cost of, of change. So if your inflation is higher in a, in a rural area than in an urban area, the Fed does not know that and take that into account. And this matters because CPI and, and these other buckets that the Fed uses, it affects how much the government is willing to pay for Social Security, for example. 
how much they'll increase those payments by. It affects other government-funded programs, and it affects the levers that they're going to try and push and pull to fix things in the economy. There are arguments a lot of times saying that CPI is overselling or over-exaggerating inflation and times that it's under-exaggerating it. There's another one called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. The Fed does pay pretty close attention to that one as well. But that one usually comes out with lower inflation outcomes than the CPI. And so if the Fed focuses on that one, they're probably getting an understated estimate of what inflation actually is. So all of that is to say, you might read an article that says the U.S. experienced 8.6% inflation year over year in the month of June, but that doesn't actually give necessarily a full or an accurate picture of what is happening in the country regarding inflation. One thing I worry about as well when it comes to the accuracy with which the Fed is able to view the market it is just the lag time. Like I think about the company that I work for and because of a lot of the complexities, you know, it's not until a month later that you really know how you did in revenue the previous month. And when it comes to like pricing increases, oftentimes those are rolled out in phases and maybe to a certain segment of customers before another. And so being able to see accurately in real time, I, I don't know how they pull all of the, you know, prices for the CPI, but I imagine that some of that reporting isn't instantaneous. And so those levers that you talked about pulling, obviously that's always reactive, not necessarily proactive. But when things have already changed between the amount of time that they receive their information and when they're pulling those levers, it gives me even less confidence that they're making the right choices. And just to dive in a little bit more about what's happening in the US right now specifically, when you talk about that delay, this is, I mean, this is something that we're seeing huge right now. You had Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, saying, I mean, as recently as four or five months ago, inflation is just transitory. He kept saying that this inflation that we're experiencing is transitory, meaning he is saying that it was momentary, it was temporary, and that it wasn't anything that needed to be corrected. And then by the time it got to a point where it was, or at least that we saw through the CPI numbers that it was getting worse and worse every month, then he finally backtracked and was like, oh, we need to start pulling the levers to try and solve for this. But it feels like he let it go for too long. I can't say that in his shoes, I would know what to do any better. Obviously, I would not. His job is extremely complicated. But there were so many people who it seems like months ago were just saying like, duh, this is not transitory. You can tell that there are all these issues with demand. There's supply chain issues. There's all this influx of cash into the system. This is something that should have been accounted for a lot earlier. And those levers should have started to have been pulled months ago. Now, I will mention that the U.S. is not alone in this, nor are we even the worst right now as far as inflation goes in the world. I've got this Pew Research article pulled up, and it's just got a little graphic. It's a map of the world, and it's showing where inflation is highest right now across 44 different countries. So again, this is only showing 44 countries. They're missing data on well over 100 countries. But even in just these 44 that they do have information for, 37 of the 44 are having inflation in the first quarter of this year at least twice what it was in the first quarter of 2020. So the vast majority, almost all of them, are having at least double the inflation over the last two years. And then looking at this map, 
It's got a sort of color coded based on how bad the inflation is. Right now, they have Turkey listed as the worst at a 54.8% year over year inflation rate, which is very high. Then uh, Russia, Brazil, Czechia, Lithuania, Estonia are all listed as having inflation between 10 and 15%. Next would be countries like the US, Colombia, Chile, Spain. I see a, a list of like seven different European countries here all with inflation between 75 and 10%. So those are just countries that are in the same boat or worse than the U.S. And there's only a very small handful of countries that have inflation less than 2.5%. Looks like Indonesia, China, Japan, and Saudi Arabia, I believe, are the only ones showing on here. So I bring that up to say the entire world is suffering the same thing happening right now. And in many countries, it's worse. This isn't a local thing. And as much as people want to believe that the president of the United States has all the power to control inflation, it really just takes looking at what's happening everywhere to realize that this is a systemic issue. You know, earlier we talked about demand pull and cost push and all these different things. Well, one of the biggest issues that we're having right now is the continuation of supply chain issues from both the pandemic, also an increase in climate change and weather factors around the world. And now, of course, with the war in Ukraine also putting a huge hamper on food and energy costs around the world, especially in Europe. And so I think the world finds itself in just a perfect storm of issues surrounding why we're having this current bout of inflation. And one that I think, at least right now, doesn't have an answer for. We don't have an end in sight. So you've mentioned what's taking place around the world in terms of inflation. We've most heavily talked about how it works in the U.S. and the Fed and their role, the levers that they can pull. One thing I have been fascinated to learn about is, I think, something we've discussed in our bonus episodes, and that's what happens when the Fed kind of runs out of options. So when they pull that lever of increasing interest rates, yeah, the economy is kind of slowing down as a result, but then you've also got increasing levels of inflation. Then what options do they have? And that's something I'm still trying to wrap my mind around. Yeah, so that's a phenomenon called stagflation. And it's pretty rare, especially in the US. It's only happened once in the 1970s. And basically what you're describing is this phenomenon of increasing inflation and a worsening economy. Like you said, typically, if one happens, they'll adjust for it by causing the other. If inflation goes up, they intentionally worsen the economy. They bring down GDP. They lower employment rates, and that will bring inflation down. And vice versa, if the economy's in the dumps, they will purposely try and increase inflation a bit, get people out spending more, lower unemployment, and, and find that balance. But every once in a while, there is something that can happen, which is saying inflation is rising. We try to correct for that by worsening the economy, but it doesn't have the desired result in bringing inflation back down. So at that point, you have a worsening economy, and continued inflation. And that is dangerous because when you think about the fact that in a recession, there are less people with jobs, there are more people hurting for cash, businesses are struggling because people are not buying. And then you also have the money that is in the system, the little bit that remains or the less that remains also is worth less. So there are less dollars floating around in the system and those dollars don't buy you as much. Not only that, but there's no control at that point. There's no end in sight 
to be able to fix it because it's like driving a car down the road and your brakes go out. The lever that you're used to that has an effect suddenly doesn't anymore. In the 1970s, this was primarily due to oil embargoes. There was a constraint on supply, which created a heightened demand, which increased prices. This also causes a panic. More people want to hurry and get fuel before they think it's going to be gone. They're not going to have access to it anymore, which increases demand even more. So this is causing inflation. It's also causing a recession. The Fed didn't have any levers that they could pull. There was nothing they could do to fix it. They simply had to wait until the embargo was lifted. Once the supply of oil or gas into the United States returned to its normal level, at that point, inflation started to come back down. They were able to correct for the recession and balance things out. So today, a lot of people are worried about stagflation. You see a lot of top economists coming out and saying this is a very real possibility for our future. And again, one of the reasons is because we're having a constraint in supply that is not something that's within the United States control. And this is happening in several different sectors, primarily in food and energy. And a big part of this now is because of the war in Ukraine, like we just mentioned. So that is a war that uh, we, we can't really control. It's happening. It is having an effect on supply chains with the other factors that we already mentioned. And the worry is, you know, Jerome Powell and the Fed is now raising interest rates very rapidly. One of the largest interest rates increases in a long time came just a couple of weeks ago at 0.75% in one in one move. And the likely effect of this is a recession. And they know that they know that what they're doing is intentionally hurting the economy. But if there's not a resolution in the supply side of things, If we're not able to get the food and the energy at the rates as quickly as we need it to meet demand, prices will not come down. So there's this potential for having this stagflationary thing happen. And there really would be no end in sight other than just hoping that the war in Ukraine ceases, that post-pandemic supply chain issues loosen up, and that dramatic weather events causing issues throughout the world and crop supplies give us a break as well. And unfortunately, I worry that if something like that did happen, it would just turn up the heat even more in terms of tension and conflict. And I think that often forces political leaders to feel like they have to show that they're doing something about it, which, you know, in our current predicament would probably cause an escalation of the conflict that's taking place in Ukraine. Being In any situation where things are getting worse and you don't feel like you have any control over it is always a terrible feeling. And so it's scary to think as a nation we could end up that way where there's not really any of those, you know, we keep calling them levers that the Fed can pull. We just have to hope that things work out and and, and wait and try to make it through. That's scary to me. Well, and as we talk about earlier in the podcast that collapse manifests itself through economic issues. At some point in the future, as supply constraints worsen due to resource depletion or peak resources is probably the better term to use there, simply as we are not able to pump out the resources at the rate that we demand them for our growth, growth will reverse. So we will have recession and unemployment and demand for those products and those resources will increase, which will increase their cost. Essentially, the future of the world is stagflation. It is what's going to happen worse than we could ever imagine. And that is the economic manifestation of our systemic problems. I'm not saying that that's what's happening now or that that's what's going to happen in the very near future. 
right? We don't make those sorts of predictions on the podcast. I'm not saying that we're going to go stagflationary in the next several months. And I'm not saying that means that we're actively collapsing as a nation. We're never going to get out of that. That's, that's not at all what's happening here as far as what I'm saying on this podcast. But I am saying it is a possibility that we go stagflationary. And I am saying that pretty much with 100% certainty in my, in my mind, that's what collapse will look like in the future at some point. The entire world will be suffering from stagflation and it will never end. Not until our energy demands or our resource demands lower to meet what supply is, which is basically the definition of, of catabolic collapse. Well, one thing I appreciate about what you were just saying is like, hey, you know, we're not trying to be alarmist here or claim that we're going to see absolutely terrible economic catastrophes in the near future. And that makes me think about something that I looked into a little bit, which is hyperinflation. And I don't think, you know, we're going to see hyperinflation. I'm, I'm not worried about that being the case in the coming months and years, at least here in the U.S. But I think when we talk about inflation, it is worthwhile to understand just how bad it can get. So there's not like a hard definition for hyperinflation, but generally it's agreed upon that 50% monthly inflation qualifies for this term. Yeah, when you think about 50% monthly inflation, the US right now is seeing about between 8 and 9% year over year, but month over month 50% would be wild. The US month over month right now is somewhere between 0.5 and 1% month over month. Well, I want to share some extreme examples. These are the top 5 cases of hyperinflation, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail. But all of these have happened within the last 100 years. So number five was October of 1944 in Greece. Prices doubled every 4.3 days. And the highest rate of monthly inflation, I'm going to have you, Corey, read what the percentage is. 13,800%. I think that matches the, de the description of at least 50% month over month. <laughs> Can you imagine? 13,800% monthly inflation. That's wild. Okay, so number four, Germany, October of 1923. In that case, prices doubled every 3.7 days. Corey, the highest monthly inflation? 29,500%. So as I was reading through these, I just thought, how could it possibly get more intense than that? But just wait. Okay, number three, Yugoslavia, January of 1994. So we're talking less than 30 years ago. Prices doubled every 1.4 days. Highest monthly inflation? So Germany was 29,500. Yugoslavia, highest monthly inflation, 313 million percent. I think it could get any worse than that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how. Okay, the next one is quite recent. Zimbabwe, November of 2008. This is the one that we brought up in episode six. I briefly mentioned this example. Yeah, so prices doubled every 24.7 hours. Highest monthly inflation. Corey, I'm so excited for you to read this. Okay, I'm adding up the zeros here. 79.6 billion percent. Okay, but that's still not number one. <laughs> number one is Hungary, 1946. Prices doubled every 15.6 hours. It's like from open of business to close of business, the price of your widget or loaf of bread or whatever doubled. And then again, the next 15 hours. And then again, the next 15 hours. <laughs> Wild. So highest monthly inflation. I don't even know how you're going to read this, Corey. 
Let's see, 15 zeros, 13.6 quadrillion percent. Like, why even, why even bother at that point? Yeah, basically, an easy way to sum up hyperinflation is that money just becomes meaningless. You hear stories in some of these countries that have gone through this where they've got such high denominations. Like, I'll just read this. Going back to the fifth highest one, Greece. In 1938, the Greeks held a drachma note for an average of 40 days before spending it. But by November 10th, 1944, the average holding time shrunk to four hours. In 1942, the highest denomination of currency was 50,000 drachma. But by 1944, so just two years later, the highest denomination was a 100 trillion drachma note. And so some of these countries, it's like you have paper currency that would normally be worth thousands or millions of dollars. And people are like crafting it into necklaces to try to trade it for a loaf of bread. And, you know, it doesn't even require these trillion percentage numbers that we're talking about here for that to be the case. I watched a YouTube video just recently of a guy who went to Venezuela. And during their recent economic issues, there was this guy selling artistic sculptures made of bills, purses and bags woven out of currency because it just it's lost its value. It's more valuable as a piece of art in its current state as a, as a bill, as a denomination. One thing you mentioned really hits home for me regarding hyperinflation or just inflation in general, and it's the feedback loop of panic. You talked about how at the beginning they were holding those notes for 40 days, and by the end it was like four hours. And it's because people knew if they didn't spend it, it was going to be worth less four hours later. Every hour that they weren't spending money, it was losing value. And we're obviously nowhere in that position but there is this feeling of my money that I'm holding on to, if I have any, is losing value. I should buy things now that I'm worried are going to cost more later. And the more that people think that way, which frankly is the correct way to think as far as the rational way to think, they go out and they buy more. And that expense, that purchase is furthering the inflation. You know, I just have to say, I saw an article today from JP Morgan. And this article, I was so confused because it was titled something about how we had avoided recession. And JP Morgan's confident that there is no more recession and we're going to be fine. And I read the article and as I'm reading through it, the entire article is trying to describe why JP Morgan thinks that we have avoided recession and stagflation and that the economy is going to increase in the fourth quarter of 2022 and be back to like 3.1% growth or something like that. I got through the whole thing and at the very bottom, there was a little part that said, all of this is contingent on the war in Ukraine coming to an end and there being a ceasefire. And I just thought that was so fascinating that they weren't talking in the article as if, hey, there's this percent chance that there's going to be a ceasefire and, and things could normalize. They were claiming things will go back to normal. Oh, and by the way, it's because we have this high confidence that there's going to be a resolution to the war. And it just made me feel like these financial institutions are realizing that they're losing the grip on society's confidence in them. People are starting to get nervous. They're maybe sensing that there's sort of this 
unease in the public. They don't want people to panic. They don't want people to start spending money. They don't want people to pull all their money out of the banks. They need money in the banking system. You know, if there were to be some sort of run on the banks in the U.S., which just recently in the last couple of weeks, there's been runs on the bank in China. So I think they're just trying to keep people's confidence in the system high, keep people feeling like everything's going to be okay, continue business as usual. But in reality, I think for people paying attention, it's pretty clear that things are, are somewhat out of control. Best case scenario, we have a recession this year because that's what they're trying to accomplish. Worst case scenario, their levers break and we have a recession, but inflation doesn't stop. Now, as I looked into hyperinflation, usually, and you can notice this if you were paying attention to the dates that I mentioned, usually it coincides with war. Another major factor is when there's just high levels of irresponsible decisions, you know, pumping a lot of money into an economy. Corruption, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so there are so many things that we've talked about over the last few months that are happening as a result of the war in Ukraine, all the supply chain issues, all of the ways that that has strained geopolitical relationships. You know, here we're talking about some of the impacts that that's having on the economy as a whole. But if this escalates or if it just goes on for long enough, you know, I'm not expecting hyperinflation, but it doesn't have to be hyperinflation to be something that causes a lot of pain for a lot of people. I mean, you even just picture 20% inflation year over year. That's not anywhere close to 50% inflation month over month. So we're not even close to, to talking about hyperinflation yet. But a 20% annual inflation would be so destructive to everybody just trying to afford living their day-to-day -day lives, as well as people who have investments in 401ks and are trying to retire, and, and many other cases. You know, I think about all the people who are trying to afford housing, who, you know, over the last decade have been saving up for a down payment on a home and now are realizing that that down payment doesn't get them close to what they need to be at because their prices of homes have doubled in the last four or five years. I think of people who were already living paycheck to paycheck, which is a huge number of people. And now the prices of all the things that they buy have gone up from anywhere between eight plus percent. And so it's really becoming harder and harder right now to get by in a system that was already pretty difficult for a lot of people. And so we continue to see, like, like they talked about for a long time, the dissolution of the middle class. The wealthy continue to get wealthier. The poor will get poorer. Of course, I hope to see a, a quick resolution to the inflation that we currently have. I hope that if we go into re recession that it's not prolonged. But at this point, it's really hard to root for a healthy economy because a healthy economy means a continuing growth in energy consumption, continuing havoc on the planet. But at the same time, I, I'm not rooting for economic problems either because of the suffering that that will cause. We know that collapse is inevitable. We know what's going to happen and we know the suffering that that's going to include. So it wouldn't make sense to say that I'm hoping for one result over the other. I just hope inherently that whatever happens includes the least amount of suffering possible and that we can mitigate just as best as we can. You know, I've always thought to myself, it'd be nice to have a lot of money, but I don't have an appetite really for super nice things. I don't, I don't care if I've got an enormous mansion or lots of sports cars, mega yacht. Or just a mini yacht, even. 
Yeah, so I've always just thought, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal as long as I make enough to get by. The more I learn about collapse, the more I just want a lot of money <laughs> for security. Yeah, for security. Absolutely. I saw something, I can't remember where it was, but somebody was saying in collapse, the last thing to die will be capitalism. And they were trying to make the point that maybe the smartest thing you can do is to try to get out of debt and to try to set yourself up for some financial resilience. And I guess for me, just as time goes on and with what I anticipate coming down the road, I think that becomes more and more true. Yeah, well said. For so many people just trying to get by day to day, the idea of financial freedom it feels so far out of reach, and for a lot of people it is. And so there's definitely this thought of not having money for greed's sake, but knowing that money is what keeps us alive, you know, and with such an uncertain future, I definitely understand what you're saying about the importance of being able to build financial independence and what a benefit that can be as, as economies falter. Okay, well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening, for being here with us this week. It'll be an interesting next several months uh, and likely next few years to kind of see what the economy does, what maneuvers the Fed or whatever central bank where you live in the world is able to, to pull in order to regulate your economy. We wish you the best of luck in maneuvering these times for yourself and making the best decisions for yourself and your family, setting yourself up for success in the best way possible. Feel free to reach out, leave us your comments, leave us your thoughts, and we'll speak next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.